720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. Long live the 5th Brigade. The 5th Brigade was essentially composed of Americans fighting in the Spanish Civil War. And we play that as background, now fading, as we introduce Stanley G. Payne, who's been with us many times before, on the phone now, from Madison, Wisconsin, where he is Professor of History. Good evening, sir. Good evening. It's a pleasure to have you with us again after rather a while, and it's been very fascinating and very instructive reading this new book of yours. Of course, you've written about the Spanish Civil War before, but this is a a book in a new series apparently uh, issued by Cambridge University Press, Short Histories of Wars. Uh, Well, no, it's called Cambridge Essential Histories. It deals with wars and and, uh, other things as well, Yeah, major themes in modern history. Let us focus directly in on the Spanish Civil War. I learned from your first chapter that, in fact, it's the most outstanding, but by no means the only civil war fought in Europe during the 1930s. Well, in the 1930s, it was the only civil war, but not the only civil war of the whole era, from World War I to World War II. Uh, there were, obviously, a series of civil wars during and after World War One, and then two at the end of World War II, especially the, the main ones in Yugoslavia and Greece. What was unique about the Spanish War was, was the only civil war during the main interwar period, and so therefore it attracted more attention even than the Russian Civil War after the Russian Revolution. And just like the American Revolution, uh, there were other foreign forces involved. Uh, In this case, foreign forces from all the major, from the three major dictatorships of the European continent. Exactly. And uh, therefore, both sides uh, on the Spanish War developed the same kind of discourse for themselves, saying that they were be, being invaded by one or more foreign powers. That is, uh, on the side of the nationalists, the right-wing forces of General Franco, Italy and Germany began to intervene after only one week. And then later on, the Soviets, uh, on the other side of the left-wing Republicans, uh, against Franco. And Franco's people said that they were being invaded by a communist revolution from the Soviet Union. Uh, the Republicans said that they were being invaded by the fascist forces from outside, and both sides of the Spanish Civil War took the uh, position they were fighting a kind of national liberation war against foreign liberation. Is this a war that one can trace, as one could say World War II, to the very strong influence of certain particular uh, eccentric but powerful personalities? You can't quite imagine World War II if Hitler had been uh, somehow shot down in World War I when he was a soldier at the front. Um, I don't think we can do the same sort of thing in the case of the Spanish War because there was a lot of confusion and blundering. And the man who became the dominant personality who won the war, General Franco, wanted to stay out of this sort of thing until the very last minute. So it was kind of the other way around, uh, whereas in World War II you have major personalities like Hitler and Stalin who are directing the forces in a very willful way from the very beginning. 
in the Spanish War, you have a lot of confusion and indirection until the, the major confrontation breaks out. So is it then really a, a war that was had about it something of the smack of inevitability? Were there social forces that can be named which inevitably converged to produce finally uh, in 1936 that war? Well, all of the European civil wars in the first half of the 20th century were revolutionary civil wars. That is, they, they, they developed as a result of the, the outbreak of revolutionary forces uh, and the resistance against them by the counter-revolutionaries. The Second Republic in Spain was first a democratic reform process that gave way then to a revolutionary process led by the uh, major revolutionary movements of Spain. The curious thing about Spain was, of course, that the two major revolutionary movements were not communist. One was anarchist and the other was socialist. The communists at first were sort of the uh, weak sister of the other two, but uh, basically the, the confrontation was revolutionary and counter-revolutionary. And the $64 question here, uh, one that can never be answered, uh, is whether there was really any, any chance of managing the revolutionary process without having it come to full blows in a major civil war. Uh, that was uh, the way it worked out in, in, in the uh, long run, but... Uh, Many historians have taken the position, of course, that this could have been managed. It's hard to see because uh, the, the socialists uh, had the, the notion that basically it was better to provoke the army and get it all over with uh, because uh, the left was fairly sure that they could win a short civil war. The military insurrectionists who actually began the fighting by rebelling against the left-wing government, uh, I think were, were less confident, but they figured that they uh, had to better give it a chance before it was too late. Who were the anarchists? What, in fact, was the ideological substance of Spanish anarchismo? Uh, well, it came from the doctrines that you find are actually begun by different Russians, Russians that nowadays people don't even remember, 19th century Russian revolutionaries who were very anti-Marxist. That is, first uh, Mikhail Bakunin and then Pyotr Kropotkin, who developed theories of uh, libertarian uh, communism, as they called it, uh, a, an individualist form of, anarch of uh, revolutionism that would not be aimed at reconstructing the state and creating a strong revolutionary state like the Marxists, later the communists, but in fact would create a kind of libertarian society, though by means of violence and the most extreme revolutionary kind of action. It's curious. They were expected they could do a great leap forward to the end state of history, because Marx himself says that the ultimate end state of history, after a successful building of communism, is the, quote, the withering away of the state. Uh, that's right. Uh, and uh, from the uh, anarchist point of view, uh, the Marxists were, in fact, a retrogression, a step backward, because they were just simply, under the guise of revolution, rec recreating in a worse form the worst aspects of the old system and not getting at the end goal. The, the anarchists thought they were going to arrive there, as you say, very rapidly. Uh, and in most European countries, uh, the anarchist doctrine seemed uh, simply too radical, too simplistic, and got major support only to some extent in Russia, who had lost out to the communists there, but particularly in Spain, and in Spain it became a mass movement. I learned from this very riveting new book of yours, The Spanish Civil War by Stanley G. Payne, just published by Cambridge University Press, that this was a war against civilians as well as against uh, one's opponents on the battlefield. That was the worst part of the war, because although the war militarily had some place in the record of military history because it began uh, combined arms, air and ground operations. It was not 
much of a war over a rather desultory war for the most part militarily. But uh, the worst part of it uh, were the what the Spanish like to call nowadays the repression, that is the mass atrocities of executions of civilians done by both sides during the first six or eight months of the they war. They speak of both the Red Terror and the White Terror, don't they? Right, right. Uh, and uh, you have large numbers of people killed by both sides, and if you add them up, they come to almost as many people as the number of Spanish soldiers on both sides actually killed in the fighting. Not quite. What, what are, what are, it, isn't, it isn't too far apart. The difference is about uh, three to two in terms of the superior numbers of the, the, the people following. Well, what, what, are the total, what are the total casualties on both sides? Well, uh, the, the, the number of uh, Spanish soldiers uh, who were killed probably were not many more than about 150,000 in the fighting. Uh, to that, you have to add another twenty or 30,000 uh, foreign participants who were killed as mm -hmm. well. But the, in terms of the executions you have, maybe if you put the two sides together, you have uh, possibly as many as 120,000 people killed in political executions. And this was not the end of it, because then once Franco had won, though he had moderated things after the first eight months during the Civil War, as had the other side, he took the position at the end that now that the other side had committed so many crimes, everything had to be punished. So he carried out a long series of Killed another military court-martials and executed another 28,000 people yeah. after the war was over. Yeah. Um, rather quite dreadful. It's interesting, of course, to note, we're about to pause for some commercials, and I want to talk then about a bit about this, that there was American participation. As there was French participation, as there was German participation on both sides, official German forces on the nationalist side, but also German communists and anti-Nazis on the loyalist side, and many, many nations, England, etc., Scandinavian nations, sent men to fight in that war. Uh, what's the total size of the American contingent? Do you have any idea? It was uh, the total number of American volunteers was probably about 2,800, a little under 3,000. In other words, curiously, almost exactly the same number of uh, Soviet participants on the other side, but the Soviets were all professional military men who yeah. were ordered by Stalin. The Americans were all individual volunteers who came of their own regard uh, at the behest of, of the Communist International to, to fight for the Republic. I've got a, um, an interview with four of them. One of them, I think, went on to become the head of the American Communist Party, Steve Nelson. Am I right in that? Uh, I don't remember whether Steve became the, 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 uh, a, a head of the uh, American Party or not. He certainly was an important He was leader. a prominent member of the American yeah, Communist Party. Yeah, right. Um, I've got about a six-minute clip from an interview done with them back in the 1970s that I want you and all of our listeners to hear. All of that to follow after this. This is Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And we return to Stanley G. Payne. Professor of History, University of Wisconsin, and the author of the newly published book, The Spanish Civil War. If you have any interest at all in the Spanish Civil War, and it's a fascinating story, uh, this is the book for you. It's uh, concise and yet full of relevant detail and full of uh, strong, necessarily strong interpretation. One interpretation I certainly get from your book is that uh, in terms of sheer material force and military force, it was all on the side of the, uh, uh, of the nationalists, on the side of the fascists. Well, uh, it, it ended up that way, uh, but there was uh, an early and middle part of the war in which the relationships were rather different. Uh, the uh, nationalists got uh, early support from Hitler and Mussolini, 
which enabled them to become stronger. But just at that point, Stalin came in on the other side. And you, you had a year of equilibrium, really, from the end of 1937 until about the autumn of 19... Uh, sorry, the end of 1936 until the autumn of 1937. And then the balance really began to shift. And during the last year of the war, the, the Franco's army was clearly the superior force. What is the Battle of Harama or Jarama? Harama uh, is a river and a river valley just a little way south of Madrid. And it was uh, the site of one of a series of battles fought around the Spanish capital in the late autumn and the winter of 1936-37 with the uh, attempt on the part of Franco to either first to seize the city directly and when he couldn't do that to try to outflank it first from the south and then from the north. The attempt to outflank it from the south went through the Harama River Valley, and that's where the Republicans shifted down their forces in February 1937 and uh, stopped the Nationalists with very little advance in territory. We've got lots of interesting music out of uh, the Spanish Civil War, and here's one that may be known to some of our listeners. Um, it's uh, Harama Valley. Um, the, the song must have been written in Spain at the time of the battle or shortly thereafter, but sung here by Woody Guthrie. Uh, and it's to the, um, this clearly uh, by an American, whoever first put it together, because uh, it's to the melody of Red River Valley. Here it is. Uh, you know, it might be well to place the American and English-speaking brigade in relationship to what actually existed in Spain, because we were not the only internationals there. There were internationals that came from all over the world. Uh, we've made a mistake. Somebody in the booth has made a mistake. Let me, uh, that's something I do want to play later, and that is the conversation with four American veterans of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. But what we're after now is number three on our other list. It's called Harama Valley, and I'm sure we can find it very quickly and play it. Here I trust it is. The place that we all know so well It was there that we fought against the fascists We saw a peaceful valley turn to hell From this valley they say we are going But don't hasten to bid us adieu even though we lost the battle at Harama, we'll set this valley free forward through. We were men of the Lincoln Battalion. We're proud of the fight that we made. We know that you people of the valley will remember our Lincoln Brigade. From this valley they say we are going, but don't hasten to bid us adieu. Even though we lost that battle at Harama, we will set this It's my impression that uh, the Spanish Civil War and the participation in it of American communists, mostly they were, though not all of them were, uh, representatives of the American Communist Party, remained, and perhaps even to this day still remains, somehow uh, a nostalgic core of uh, 
of sentimentality for those who have inherited that tradition. Oh, there's no question about that. And it was very important also in Eastern Europe later on, after 1945, became part of the uh, official ideology of, of the uh, German Democratic Republic, the communist regime in East Germany. Yeah. Because here was a case where people who were not Soviets were fighting against people who could be identified, at least to some extent, as fascists. And that was during a time of general appeasement of Hitler, so that this became really a very unique experience. What, was the military generalship and the military strategy ultimately superior on the nationalist side? They, of course, had most of the generals, didn't they? Well, they had most of the generals. Uh, depending on the quality of the generals, that may not make too much difference. Uh, the, the more important thing was that the, the nationalist army was simply better organized and, and, and better commanded in the field by ordinary combat officers. And better equipped. And that eventually developed a preponderance of weaponry as yeah. well during the second half of the war, which gave it uh, increasingly overwhelming superiority, although it didn't really become overwhelming until the, the uh, uh, last year of the war. They also have a German Air Force essentially flying for them, don't they? Yeah, although they had just as many Italians, and the Italians uh -huh. have never gotten uh, as much publicity. Uh, the uh, Condor Legion, the special uh, German mini-air corps of 90 combat planes, was significant because uh, it was carrying out air-to-ground support operations by means of medium bombers and then even a few dive bombers. The Italians did the same kind of thing. The, the Germans had conceptualized the tactic, however, a little more clearly than the Italians had. The uh, amount of Italian participation was actually greater than the amount of German participation. But the Condor Legion was a very skilled unit, and although it never had as many as 100 planes in operation at any one time, it was important, uh, and of course it also had a kind of symbolic political significance as well. Hitler, of course, expected, or certainly hoped for, uh, a repayment of the debt by Franco. That is, ultimately, during World War II, he expected uh, and uh, called for Spanish participation as a nation allied to Germany, but Franco held off and never went into the war. Well, that's correct, and the, the, the uh, ironic thing about it was that uh, the participation of the war virtually was, at the time that Hitler requested it, at the end of 1940, to involve virtually no Spanish fighting, because what he really wanted to do was to send a, a German unit across Spain to seize Gibraltar and close off the Mediterranean to the British and make it possible, therefore, for the Axis to control all of North Africa and get control, uh, ultimately, of the Suez Canal as well. He wasn't even asking uh, Franco to provide significant military forces because he realized that Spain, after the Civil War, did not have military units capable of fighting at the level of the major armies in, in World War II. But uh, Franco had his price, and Hitler would not meet his price, and so this never happened. What was Franco's price? Franco wanted three things. He was very, very categorical about it. He wanted a good deal of military assistance, a good deal of economic assistance, and he also wanted a territorial guarantee that uh, Hitler would give to Spain essentially a large part of French Northwest Africa, all of Morocco, northwestern Algeria, uh, French Equatorial Africa. So uh, it was a, a, a fairly stiff price, and the sticking part of it in 1940 was that the peculiar terms on which uh, Hitler had signed the armistice uh, with defeated France made the remainder of France in the Vichy regime, Marshal Pétain, 
a uh, kind of satellite, not quite a military ally, but a satellite of Germany, which was important economically, uh, producing for the German economy, and importantly also for the time being as a kind of international equilibrium to hold the rear guard in uh, parts of the colonial world while Hitler concentrated on Europe. And so he took the position that he simply could not afford to give Franco these things while the war was on and asked Franco to trust him that he would do the right thing in taking care of Spain after the war was over. But Franco was not too big on blind trust, so it just didn't work. Franco, of course, counts as a fascist, and he maintained a fascist order uh, in Spain for many more years than uh, Hitler maintained his fascist Nazi order in Germany. Uh, I think he probably even exceeded Mussolini in terms of years in power. Oh, of course, yeah, by, by all means. But, of course, the reason why he was able to do that and maintain this kind of fascism was that Franco always operated a very attenuated kind of fascism. It was not radical, uh, and it did not dominate his system, and he was able to ratchet it down whenever he wanted to, and he began the ratcheting down in the middle of the war, and especially in 1943 when Mussolini was overthrown. Then he saw that uh, this sort of thing simply wasn't going to work, and so he began to move in a somewhat different direction. And it was the very weakness of the fascism of the Franco regime as a political force in Spain that enabled uh, Franco to survive as long. That is, one was sort of dependent on the other. Uh, We're about to pause for an update on the news. But before we do, I should mention, of course, that one of the great books on fascism itself, on the very nature of European fascism, uh, is by Stanley G. Payne. And we talked about that book on an earlier occasion. Right now, uh, to the WGN newsroom. On 720 WGN. I'm sure, family, you recognize that as yet another song from the Spanish Civil War. Alas Barricadas, one of the great marching songs, I gather. And we'll fade on that and return uh, to some of the main themes developed in the fine new book by Stanley Payne, The Spanish Civil War. You know, one word that has not yet arisen, one term that has not yet arisen, but is crucial to an understanding of the Civil War, is the Catholic Church. Absolutely, and uh, one of the main features of the war in Spain, even more than of the revolution and civil war in Russia uh, 20 years earlier, was the fact that the revolutionaries made the civil war a war on religion, that is, specifically a war on Catholicism. And uh, this probably was the greatest weakness of their whole program, because it had the effect simply of solidifying the resistance of virtually the entire Catholic uh, population against them, and was the greatest uh, moral and cultural, uh, ideological and spiritual benefit that Franco enjoyed. What was the basis of that, and what was the basis of their anti-Catholicism? Uh, the idea at the root of it, I mean, they made a lot of specific charges against uh, the church and the clergy, uh, a few of which were true and many of which were untrue, but the root of it really was that uh, Spanish tradition, Spanish conservatism, 
was very strongly identified with Catholicism, and that the Catholic Church and the clergy were therefore the uh, real spiritual directors of the old order, uh, and that it depended on them in a special way in which uh, it didn't depend on, on anybody else. And therefore, the clergy particularly were targets of the revolution in the first months of the Civil War. But the effect of that actually was to weaken the Republican revolutionaries. Uh, and if they had been able to take a different policy, actually they, they would have been better off in the course of the, of the struggle. Was the hand of the Vatican in any way uh, visibly present in the Spanish Civil War? The Vatican tried to stay out of it. Uh, the only thing that you could perhaps compare uh, this with in a certain sense was the uh, quasi-civil war in Mexico in the late 1920s of the Cristeros, as they were called, mm -hmm. uh, against the um, revolutionary Mexican government. And the Vatican uh, did not support that and tried to stay out of it. Uh, you have to remember also that in the, uh, the point where the Spanish War began in 1936, the Vatican had... Seven years earlier, signed a concordat with Mussolini, and three years earlier, signed a concordat with Hitler. And particularly in terms of the latter arrangement, the Vatican had begun to feel by that time that it had gotten its fingers very badly burned. And Pope Pius XI, who was in charge, uh, was becoming more and more anti-Nazi by the month. And therefore, even though the Spanish church leaders urged the Vatican to support Franco, uh, the Vatican was very cherry of any kind of overt recognition of Franco, uh, and did not send a nuncio, did send a semi-official representative, but never sent an official nuncio to, to uh, yeah. Spain during the war. Now here's something I wanted you to hear, and I wanted our audience to hear. This is a conversation uh, done by Pacifica Radio rather a while ago in 1971 with four veterans of the uh, Abraham Lincoln Battalion of the uh, International Brigade. And one of them is, as I said, a man who became quite prominent in the American Communist Party uh, later on, or was prominent even then, uh, namely Steve Nelson, also Robert Stack, uh, Lawrence uh, Kane, and Maury Kolau are interviewed here uh, in this excerpt um, from, as I say, 1971. Uh, you know, it might be well to place the American and English-speaking brigade in relationship to what actually existed in Spain, because we were not the only internationals there. There were internationals that came from all over the world. Mm -hmm. In actuality, in terms of its organizational formation, there were five international brigades. There was the 11th, which was essentially German German-speaking Scandinavian people. There was the 12th, which was the, uh, the, um, Italian. the Italian. Italian. They called it the Garibaldi Brigade. But it was essentially Italian-speaking people. Anti-fascist. Yeah, Italian-speaking anti-fascist. There was the 13th, which was known as the Dombrowski, which was Polish, and mostly f comprised of Central Europeans. Slavs. Slavs, of one kind or another. So there was a similarity of language and an ease of understanding each other. There was the 14th, which was the French and the Belgian, called the Franco-Belge. And there was the 15th International Brigade, which essentially... 15th was the Anglo-American. Anglo-American. Mm -hmm. Englishmen. Canadians. Canadians. Mm -hmm. And so on. Um, Australians, New Zealanders, mm -hmm. and also a battalion in there of Latin Americans. Oh, yeah. 
uh, Bill, it might be worth while mentioning now where we fit into the whole picture of the Spanish fight. You see, the, the fascists had an organized army, and the loyalist side n had nothing but civilians who were armed. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We were exactly like they were. We were armed civilians, volunteers, without necessarily a lot of military training. The loyalist government, uh, it took it some time for it to introduce a draft because there were those who were opposed to the draft on principle. So the reason we were shunted around at the beginning, the point Maury was making, is because the other side was putting on the pressure. Mm -hmm. They had the army. They had, uh, well, needless to say, out of a whole army in the country, they had some 800 generals in the country. They all went to, with the fascists except four. Tanks. Four, four remained on the Loyalist Air side. Air Force. They had the whole they, business. Then they had the Air Force. Then they had 50,000 Germans, 100,000 Italians, and 25,000 Portuguese from the very start. And God knows how many Moors. Uh, I mean, yeah, right. yeah. From the very start. And they had the colonial Spanish army under Franco, which was the Moors and Foreign Legion that were brought in. So our purpose for going there, we might make that point too, was not so much military. You know, although that was important. It was to show the Spanish people that there are people in the world who are with them. Although, although the truth of the matter is that the military situation was so bad that uh, the brigade was thrown into every major battle in Spain and as shock troops. And they were inspirational, as Steve has pointed out. But, um, you know, it's, I participated in World War II when I was in the Navy drafted into the Navy, and there were a lot of guys on my ship, and they certainly did a good job. I don't want to denigrate them, but uh, a lot of them just didn't give a damn. They just wanted to get the hell out as soon as they could. But every guy who was in Spain, despite his momentary physical, personal fear or anything that he experienced, nevertheless uh, had enough of an ideology, enough of a feeling that kept him alive and kept him going and made him a fantastic soldier in a sense. I wanted to ask... Uh... There we have a portion of that conversation. Um, how accurate are these guys in their memories? Well, it begins uh, with remarks, I guess, of Steve Nelson describing the organization of the IBs, and uh, that first minute or two was completely accurate yeah. about the, the five main brigades. Interestingly, as he pointed out quite correctly, numbered 11 through 15. That was done for propaganda purposes to make it sound as though there were 15, but in fact there were only five full brigades most of the time. Yeah. And then after that they wander off much more into propaganda. They didn't have to fight the whole Spanish army. The Spanish army divided in half, but the revolutionaries uh, were very reluctant to use the other half of the army, and they mostly dissolved it and tried to fight with the revolutionary militia. And that didn't work, and then they began to reorganize the, the new People's Army. Uh, the uh, veterans are correct that uh, the people in the IBs are volunteers. Uh, the common turn organized people from, from all over Europe and North America, not so much from other parts of the world, but there were a few Latin Americans as well. There certainly was a lot of infighting uh, within the Loyalist forces. George Orwell um, uh, tells the story in one of his books, um, who was there as a volunteer also, of his being incarcerated, I guess, by the anarchists who were planning to execute him. Yes, George Orwell was a, was a volunteer, but not for the international brigades. He was an independent revolutionary yeah. who fought for the the, uh, the militia of the independent Communist Party of Spain, 
which was sometimes allied with the with the anarchists, actually, uh, so that uh, uh, there were many different sorts of such people. The anarchists also organized small uh, international units of their own, but it was, but not at all of the size of Comintern. The main Comintern international brigades numbered uh, altogether during the course of the war about 41,000 people, though probably not very many more than 20,000 appeared on the fighting line at any one time. It's time for us to pause for a last round of commercials, but first I do, of course, want to invite telephone calls. And the lines are open once again. The number is, of course, 312-981-7200. For that matter, if you want to get to us via email, the email address, extension 720 at com, And we welcome your calls and or emails. You have to get them in quickly. We'll be directly back to Stanley Payne and hopefully on to some of your contributions as well after we pause for these words. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. The Spanish Civil War by Stanley G. Payne <clears throat> is a book... Uh, easily to be recommended to any who've got any interest at all in modern history. And in the last throes of, um, well, not the last throes, but the early throes of fascism, that having been a fascist revolution against uh, what is essentially a left-wing uh, and quasi-Marxist revolution, it's it's pretty hard to specify all the all the players in this game, Stanley, isn't it? There were so many, particularly on the loyalist side, who disagreed in some significant ways with one another and uh, between the various loyalist factions. That was their major problem. And in fact, the major Republican leaders admitted after the war was over that their, their greatest deficiency was not really military so much as their internal disunity yeah. and the lack of uh, decisive and unified leadership. Here's a, uh, an email from <clears throat> one of our listeners who says, at least one historian, Frederick L. Schumann, says that FDR and his Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, quietly wanted Franco to win. So they saw to it that quite a lot of arms and planes and military equipment were shipped to neutral Portugal, knowing that these would find their way over the border and into Franco, Spain. The name of the Portuguese dictator at the time was Salazar, who was a friend of Franco's. Um, is, is that a reasonable interpretation? No. The only part of that that's correct is the last phrase. That yes. Salazar was a friend of Franco. The rest of it is all completely wrong. Roosevelt tried to be neutral during the first year of the Civil War. And during the second half of the Civil War, he veered more and more toward the Republican side. But by that time, the Congress had passed neutrality legislation that even applied to civil wars as well. So nothing could be done. One American historian has found that in the last year of the Civil War, Roosevelt even tried to organize, uh, through a third party, a scheme to sell American warplanes by independent manufacturers to the Mexican government to ship to the Republic. But that simply couldn't be done, as it turned out, because of the strictness of the neutrality legislation. But the main part of that message is totally mistaken. Wasn't there a fair amount of um, public support by significant uh, American public figures also for the Loyalist cause? I think Hollywood was sort of on the side of the Loyalists, was it not? Yeah, well, the, the commentator worked on that very hard. And uh, they, they, they got a lot of uh, uh, Hollywood support. But quite aside from the commentator, the fact was that particularly by the second half of the Civil War, American public opinion uh, was very clearly about two to one on the side of the Republicans. But at the same time, the same people who favored the Republicans said that they didn't want the United States to become involved in any way. So that was just a kind of sentiment. 
but it had no implications in regard to policy. Here is a call from one of our listeners. Mark joins us. Good evening. Good evening, Milton. Uh, I'm, I'm presuming that uh, the, the fascist forces, to one degree or another, were anti-Semitic. Um, but since you mentioned George Orwell in there, and I remember he was in that, he was rather an anti-Semite himself. Well, that went with the territory of being a British intellectual at the time. I guess. So it, was this rather uh, on both sides? Or? Well, how much overt anti-Semitism uh, did uh, the nationalists display? Well, in, in terms of policy, none. I wouldn't find, have thought uh, so. It was part of the rhetoric to say part of this, uh, use phrases like Jewish and communist conspiracy. But it didn't go beyond rhetoric. Franco was, was not uh, particularly anti-Semitic. And uh, in uh, Spanish Morocco particularly, uh, there were Spanish citizens, and the, the Jewish boys were drafted into the Nationalist Army of Franco and treated like everybody else. Are there Jewish there figures? There was occasion when uh, uh, a, a, a kind of... Uh, Propaganda incident developed in Spanish Morocco, and Franco intervened personally to say, we're not going to have this sort of thing. Everybody must be united yeah. behind the war effort, and we're not going to engage in vendettas against Jews. Franco uh, was, was not really an anti-Semite. He had his, his own fixations, but Jews were not one of them. So, if, in other words, sir, if... Uh Anything that Franco might have said uh, might have just been for the benefit of uh, Hitler and the Nazis. Well, no, that, that's not quite right either, because this was part of the standard rhetoric uh, of the right to throw in the, the adjective Jewish, even though at that time there were only 6,000 Jews in Spain, and they weren't even talking about the Jews in Spain, but uh, the idea that there was a... a Jewish big business or international finance, that sort of thing. But it was strictly rhetorical. But rabid anti-Semitism anti was clearly the specialty of the German Nazis. It's worth remembering. Am I right on this, Stanley, that there was at least one Jewish member of the fascist Grand Council in Italy at the, well, the, the, at the beginning the, of the, the war? The fascist movement originally had been disproportionately Jewish. Yeah. What I mean by that is that the proportion of Jews in the movement was actually slightly greater than that of the very tiny proportion of Jews in the Italian population mm. as a whole. That all changed in 1938. But the Germans uh, in Spain were rather scandalized to see that Franco had no regulations of any kind controlling or restricting Jews. He just did not see this yeah. as a problem. And there were very few Jews in Spain anyway. We go to another caller. Troy joins us. Good evening, Troy. You're on the air. Yeah, so I just, uh, well, I read in some other books, you know, they compared uh, the Bosnian War with all these ideologies, people from all over, you know, you had the Catholics helping the, the Croats and the Orthodox, the Serbs, and, of course, the Muslims, and how these two wars uh, compare, and uh, why is it that Europeans, uh, whenever there's, like, a, a civil war, people from other countries get involved? Well, hmm. <laughs> they they they. they don't necessarily always get involved for some time. It depends. European countries, of course, are cheek by jowl by each other. And uh, the intervention in the, in the uh, Russian Civil War, by and large, was not that great militarily uh, and uh, didn't play much role in the Finnish Civil War either. In Spain, it certainly did. Uh, in Yugoslavia, of course, because of the World War going on, there wasn't much foreign intervention. Eventually, though, in Greece it became important because the British and American governments helped the Greek anti-communists win the Greek Civil War. So you do find a lot of it. 
uh, one way or the other. That, that's certainly so. You actually find a lot of participation in the Greek War of Independence against Turkey way back in the middle of the 19th century. That's right. Lord Byron was on his way to Greece uh, when he died, I think. That is absolutely correct. And uh, no, uh, Lord, Yeah, Lord Bryan, then 100 years later, in the 1920s, you had the Greek-Turkish War, and uh, the same thing happens. You know, Europeans just seem to battle each other, and even if their country's not involved, no. others will get involved. Well, but it, it does reflect, does it not, Stanley, a great division in Western civilization, particularly in Europe, in the 30s, and then ultimately enacted during World War II, namely a division between what essentially has to be called liberalism or democracy, uh, and uh, essentially a traditionalist orientation, which at its worst took a fascist turn, but also was strongly anchored in uh, the Catholic Church, and was very worried about and uh, angry at the possibility of, and very threatened by the possibility of communist domination. Yeah, and uh, the, the, the lineup tends to change decade by decade. Yeah. Uh, after World War I, it tended to be revolutionary versus counter-revolutionary, but then comes the development of fascism, and that triangulates the whole thing. And ultimately, it becomes fascist and anti-fascist, even though the anti-fascists, as in Spain, uh, differed very widely. During World War II, they differed more widely yet, but at least in Europe, they cooperated against Hitler. And then, of course, after that was over with, the uh, revolutionaries versus counter-revolutionaries, or communists and anti-communists took over again following 1945. But the lineup changes somewhat from decade to decade. Uh, one more quick call coming up, and this is Joe, who joins us. Good evening, Joe. You're on the air. Uh, yes, uh, this is exactly the same subject, but of course it's Spain. How did Colonel Leon de Grell manage to live in Spain for so long? Uh, because uh, he was not a German, but a Waffen-SS non-German. Yes, he was. Uh, he was not on the list of Germans originally the Allies asked for. Franco didn't give them all up anyway. He sent ordinary German personnel back, but uh, there were several hundred Germans who managed to stay in Spain. We should make clear who... who well, simply took advantage of that. We and, should make clear who de Grel was. Uh, Léon de Grel was the leader of a Vallon or uh, Belgian uh, fascist party in the late 1930s yes. who rallied to Hitler, uh, whereas uh, in the Low Countries some of the fascists did not, but opposed the Germans as foreign imperialists. But he became very pro-Nazi and was a distinguished veteran officer of the Waffen-SS, wounded, I think, six times. Hitler loved him, and he managed to escape in 1945 by getting a, a very small airplane uh, with a pilot that managed to fly to the northern coast of Spain, run out of fuel, and crash land virtually on the beach. It was an extraordinary story. Um, we are very close to the end of the available time. I, I can't resist asking something that has fascinated me. You're an expert on fascism as well. We've talked about uh, the rise of fascism in Europe, and you've done a major book on that. Uh, do, what do you know about the case of a former professor at the University of Chicago, Mircea Eliade? Oh, Eliade was one of the active young intellectuals of the Romanian fascist movement, uh, which is sometimes called the Iron Guard. But that was the 
really the, the dominant uh, political influence among the young intelligentsia yeah. in Romania in the 1930s. You have a whole series of noted Romanian intellectuals, like Emil Cioran, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature, who had been uh, an iron guardist. So that was kind of par for the course in Romania around 1935. Uh, what what discovery did you make doing the research for this new book, The Spanish Civil War, that had escaped you in your previous scholarly pursuits? Uh, well, I've been working on this on some time, so this is kind of a summation. Uh, and uh, I guess what what uh, was uh, most interesting, actually, was to look on, not so much on, on the, uh, the political side, uh, but on the military side, and, and see how the, the balance of military forces... Yeah shifted over the course of the war. And that's so very... Nothing uh, remarkably dramatic about that. But that's very clearly represented in the book. It's a fine book. I've very much enjoyed reading it. And I thank you so much for joining us tonight, Stanley. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And we will be back again on Sunday night, I do believe. Um, until then, it's worth repeating that the new book by Stanley Payne is titled The Spanish Civil War and is published by Cambridge University Press. This program, like all of our programs, will be up on the, the podcast file, which you can get to by just, and that'll be by late tomorrow, surely. You get to that uh, set of podcasts by going to wgnradio.com forward slash extension 720. With that, thanks to all for listening, and a most cordial good night.